And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking about parenting, a parenting toolkit for harder-to-parent kids. I really enjoyed this show. I think it's going to be very, very useful. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Find at least one activity that you both enjoy, even if you, um, even if it's a stretch. But uh, you know, it could be something as simple as a walk. Uh, it could be uh, this one of my children who was the most difficult to like, the most. Uh, difficult in just so many other ways, uh, really did like helping um, cook. And she wasn't good at it, and, and it was, um, you know, it was more work than it was worth almost when she was supposedly helping. I had to do twice as much work as when she wasn't <laughs> helping. But, um, but it was the one time when we could actually sort of physically be in the same place and she was doing something that she really wanted to do and we were doing it together. And that began to build the foundation of um, sort of a sense of connection and, and again, that, that empathy that then could carry over. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. At Creating a Family, we are educators and advocates who care about adoption and adoptive parents and adopted kids. Most of the people who use our resources don't give, and that's okay because we that's our mission to provide. However, this year we reached over a half a million people through our support group, our radio show, our website, our newsletters. And if everyone who cared about this work gave, we could do so much more to make life better for those who are creating their families through adoption or infertility. So we're going to ask you, we don't do this often, but we're going to ask you now at the season of giving, to give to Creating a Family by going to creatingafamily.org slash donation to make a tax-deductible gift today. And just in advance, let me say thank you so very much. This radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. We thank them today, this day, as well as all days for their continued support of this show and of our mission to provide unbiased, accurate uh, information to those struggling to create a family. In addition to Faring, we also have gold sponsors who believe in our mission and who support us and support us doing what we do. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include MLJ Adoptions. They are a nonprofit Hague-accredited adoption agency serving families across the U.S., who are interested in growing their family through international adoption. They offer home study services to residents of Indiana as well. We have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. 
and we have Holt International. They were founded in 1956, and they want every child to have a loving and secure home. They lead the global community in finding families for children who need them and providing the pre- and post-adoption support that they need to thrive. We will have some other gold sponsors that we'll tell you about later in the show. But I wanted to say that in addition to our gold sponsors, we have regular sponsors uh, who, uh, whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. So we ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please choose one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on our service provider page. We could search by location, services provided, number of years in operation, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. So today, we're going to be talking about parenting kids who are harder to parent. Our guests today to talk about this are Allison Douglas. She is the family advocate at Harmony Family Center in Knoxville, Tennessee. She and her husband have adopted four children from foster care. We also have Sue Beddow. She is president of the North American Council on Adoptable Children and an adoptive mom of 22 kids, or actually, I think she's adopted 20, but 22 in total. She's a mother of 22. And she and her daughter, Chelsea, are the authors of an adult coloring book. Actually, it's a coloring and a parenting book titled Building Bridges of Hope for Adults Caring for Children Who Have Experienced Trauma. So welcome, Allison and Sue, to uh, Creating a Family, and uh, thank you for providing your expertise for us for this course, for us to be able to uh, uh, to help families who are adopting kids that are, are harder to parent. Uh, and, and Sue, let me start off by saying that I enjoyed uh, this uh, Building Bridges of Hope. Uh, it's more than just a coloring book. It's actually a parenting book, or that's how I viewed it, because on one page there's uh, something to color, and on the other page um, there is parenting advice and tips and tricks and things like that. So uh, thank you so much for um, for um, for doing that. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it was a really, it's been a really exciting project to work on, of course, with my own daughter, so that always uh, is rewarding to do a project uh, with our kids as they grow up and begin to develop their own uh, talents and, and skills. And I do a lot of training, live in-person training, uh, for uh, foster and adoptive and kinship caregivers on these topics of parenting children with challenging behaviors and children who have experienced trauma. And they often ask me, do you have this in a book form? Um, so uh, it was really fun to create this whole workbook in a book form, but also with the uh, beautiful uh, artwork to color that my daughter created. So it has been a fun project, and parents, um, parent groups, foster parent groups and adoptive parent groups around the country have been um, using it and responding very positively to it. So that, that's really why we created it, was to give a hands-on tool that people could have in the moment, in their home, not to wait till next Thursday to the next therapist appointment. Uh, when they need something mm-hmm. at their fingertips. Okay, well, let's jump right in, though. We've got a lot of, of really wonderful questions, so this is going to end up being a, a bit like a, a Q&A. But the reason we're doing it this way, and a lot of our courses we don't do that way, but this one we were doing this way because we thought that the questions so well captured some of the the feelings and issues associated with parenting harder-to-parent kids or parenting children with challenging behaviors or however we want to. In our family, uh, we euphemistically called it a, harder, a high-maintenance child. 
Um, but nonetheless, uh, we all know what we're talking about. Kids, they're just more difficult to parent. I'm going to start with one. I decided not to cut too much out. It is uh, a bit of a novella, but I, I also think that it captures a lot of, of of the feeling aspect. This is from Kim. She said, we adopted a sibling group. Our twins were six weeks and son almost two when they came to live with us came to live with us. Twin girls are now four and a half and brother about six and a half. They are so difficult. One twin has uh, sensory processing disorder and the other slight fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, The one with, and she's calling it FAS, so I will just use what she's saying. The one with FAS does well in very controlled environments, like preschool. The number one problem is she won't stay out of things. It is so bad. She goes into rooms, closets, climbs furniture and appliances. I don't even know how she does it. And she takes only things she knows she shouldn't. She took my wedding ring, and we still haven't found it. I literally still cannot take my eyes off of her. I have to set my alarm even on weekends if I want to brush my teeth and get dressed or do anything. That's how bad it is. If I use the restroom without bringing her, I already know she'll be into something, even when the other two are watching a new movie or playing with cool new toys. We've tried all sorts of positive reinforcement and consequences. Some helped, but most do not. They currently see a play therapist and all have speech therapy, physical therapy, and occupational therapy at different times. We also have feeding therapy for my six-year-old. The one twin cannot sit in her chair, not even for a minute. However, her teacher says she does fine at school. I have read books, taken advice from therapists, etc., and still can't seem to gain control. Sorry this is so long. I have just never experienced this with any child, and I have had five children before and 22 nieces and nephews, two of which are ADHD, ODD, which is Oppositional Defiant Disorder, and one is Autistic. It is so strange and so hard. I'm not even sure it will ever stop. I guess if I could ask one question, it would be, what can I do to keep my daughter from getting into stuff the very second I turn my back? Allison, let's start with you. And, and Sue, I definitely want you to chime in, but uh, Allison, let's start with you. Uh, I've actually heard this a fair amount. Uh, and, and it's easy for us as parents to say, oh, you know, my kid was into everything, too. In fact, we all say that of our toddlers. Oh, my kid is into everything. But this child is taking it up a notch, not one notch. This child is taking it up three or four notches. Um, any thoughts on, um, uh, and, and, and obviously there's some prenatal exposure issues here, any thoughts on, on what Kim can do, Allison? Um, sure. I have been in this situation um, because I also have kids who have been through prenatal trauma and drug and alcohol exposure, um, and this mama sounds so tired. And mm-hmm. um, I know when my kids were um, preschool age, it just felt overwhelming. So um, I think first getting some time. Um, for mom to regroup could be really helpful. Um, And I think that's hard for us sometimes as moms to ask for help. So um, as the children um, continue to grow and learn more of those self-regulation skills, some of this may get easier. But in the time being, she just may need some assistance. Um, My husband and I found an awesome college student um, who was studying speech therapy uh, to come to our home and assist me. And that was challenging because I thought, I know this stuff. I know how to care for hurt kids. 
but I just couldn't do it alone because I was outnumbered, and um, my kids didn't always respond to typical discipline um, or that great, um, as she said, positive reinforcement that, that other kids in my life had responded to. So I think just in some ways getting some help can help you get a handle on this. So maybe finding that support, um, maybe a Mother's Day out for some of the kids could be really helpful. I think also she mentioned that one of her kiddos had some sensory issues. And I think for children with sensory issues, we often wait until after they've melted down or they're all over the place to give them those sensory tools. But putting in place a daily sensory diet for this child could really be helpful. So having the child um, do some heavy work or to swing at the beginning of the day or before a situation where she would be asked or he would be asked to sit um, for a few minutes alone could be incredibly helpful. Um, In our house, we actually built onto our home uh, an entire room that is a dedicated sensory room. And I would have loved to use that money to retire on, but I really needed my kids to be okay so I could do what this mama said and just use the bathroom in peace. (laughs) How do you keep your kids in that room? Uh, Because that's one of the issues that we often hear is that, you turn your back and the kid is gone, and and so it's is into things that you you don't want where you don't want them to be or you can't trust them to be. So so you've got a a room that seems like it would be safe for the, to leave the children in. I'm assuming, but how do you keep them there? Well, I'm not sure that we have mastered keeping them there, um, but we just do a lot of line of sight supervision, which is incredibly challenging, um, but it's necessary to make sure that some of our children are safe. Um, Also, the more that the child is able to do these sensory activities, the more that I've seen them regulate. So my son um, will be really dysregulated will go into the sensory room and then do something that's not appropriate in, um, in a regular living space, like throw balls up against the wall or um, just kick a yoga ball. And that will bring him down just enough that now he's able to be more reasonable and more self-regulated and able to follow um, guidelines and boundaries much better than he was before he was engaging in some of these activities. Sue, do you have some thoughts for Kim? Yes, this is Sue, and I just cannot say how much I would underscore, underline, and um, totally agree with everything that was just said, especially um, in two important areas. One is getting help and um, getting someone that can spend one-on-one time with this child just so that mom, dad, other siblings can have that break from that hypervigilance that you constantly feel when you're in that situation. Um, and I think a college student is a great example, a person from your extended family, from your church if you're involved with a church, just looking in those kind of places for that uh, person, but also making sure that that person then receives some training so that the uh, engagement they do with your child actually supports the work you also are trying to do with your child and doesn't in any way undermine that. So I, I did want to add that piece about training for the, the helper as well. And then the sensory uh, piece is, is critical. That's a lot of what I talk about in the, 
in the coloring book workbook is how to use all, how to engage all senses and uh, mind, body, and spirit. So in addition to the sensory piece, I want to just highlight any form of physical activity for this child, gymnastics, dance class, just playing outside uh, when possible, um, big big objects, like I liked the yoga ball idea, things that are larger than, than um, you know, typical play toys for a child, um, you know, climbing on things uh, in ways that can be safe and can be structured. And, again, the more that the child is able to do those things, the less um, that she will then, um, you know, be inclined to do it when she uh, shouldn't or in ways that are dangerous or, or uh, scary. So I think that it is going to continue. It's not going to just suddenly end. I think these things will help. Um, and so also besides the getting help with the child, the one-on-one, that sort of thing, um, finding support through other parents through this through your website, of course, and in person if at all possible to know that you're not alone and that you can get, um, you know, that you will, this will be a journey and this will take time. I think perhaps weighted, uh, a weighted blanket uh, for this child might be something to explore, um, a weighted vest, some of these things, because I do think that there's probably a lot of the sensory issues going on that once you can get her more regulated, uh, it will diminish but not eliminate this uh, this sort of constant getting into things. And then the last thing I would say is provide, a, uh, in addition to the sort of sensory area, a treasure box area or something where she sort of can get into that has, um, that where you put surprises and little things that she can find that that she might not expect and something where you can sort of redirect that energy of wanting to get into stuff and sort of find, um, you know, go check the treasure box and what's in it today and it's something that kind of got hidden or planted there, uh, a little bit of the scavenger hunt idea, but in a way that um, you have a little bit more control over than you have currently. Great suggestions all. And when Sue mentioned the coloring book, again, she is speaking of the Building Bridges of Hope, a coloring book by Sue and Chelsea Badeau. And as to training, let me mention that, and I think that is a great idea that when you're bringing people in to work with your kids, you're not going to try to give them a Ph.D. or a trial-by-fire education that you as a parent have, but you may want them to have some basic information. And Creating a Family has online courses we have them on all sorts of topics, including sensory processing disorder. We, there are interviews with leading experts and um, oppositional defiance disorder and things such as that. And you can find those on our website, creatingafamily.org, under unlo- online courses. And we have courses for parents, but you can also, caretakers can, can also obviously take those as well. All right, the next question we have is from Jamie. She said, I'd love to hear uh, uh, some information on parenting a very strong-willed, gifted preschooler. My son is three, an extreme perfectionist, easily frustrated and prone to multiple emotional screaming and sometimes violent outbursts a day. I feel that he is this close to oppositional defiance disorder, ODD. He has no past trauma or any other issues. Um, so, Sue, let's talk about this three-year-old who is, um, <clears throat> I guess you could say, not well controlled. He uh, uh, very easily frustrated and, and a lot of tantruming, and it sounds like the tantrumings are extreme, are certainly more than than what uh, the average three-year-old would have. 
Yeah, so I think actually this is interesting. A lot of the same kind of advice that we would give to the last person would apply here. But in this instance, I would add two other things to start with. I would probably add more, but particularly two other things come right away to mind. And one is keep a notebook and really be very observant of what occurs in the 30 minutes or so before the tantrums and really be um, very observant in ways we might not normally think of, like notice what were the smells uh, or scents or aromas in the room or the space before? What were the visual um, you know, uh, stimuli that were around? What was, what was within the child's sight? What were the sounds? Was there music? Was there laughter? Was there some other ambient noise in the background? Um, so really be uh, observant in more ways than you might think, and especially thinking through all five of the senses, what was going on, because you might then over time be able to identify patterns of what precedes these tantrums, and then that can help you understand what really are his triggers. There might be something going on that um, doesn't seem as apparent on the surface until you do this deeper level of observation. But once you do it, you can begin to notice patterns and you can understand the triggers better, and then you can do both separation and support to help him get through that in ways that don't involve uh, the tantruming. The second, though, um, that I would mention is that when you do have a child that has more extreme um, responses and behaviors like this, uh, you also want to be sure that um, all of the potential medical and physiological um, possibilities have been explored and or ruled out before only working on emotional regulation and, and behavior coaching and things like that. So um, I think it has to go hand in hand. It's the, um, it's the body, mind, and spirit and emotions. Um, so I really would uh, go for that sort of neurological and thorough uh, physiological assessment as well as, the, um, as well as all the work on the emotional regulation and the sort of sensory support, but really observing what happens ahead of time so that you can uh, understand what patterns there might be. Yeah. Um, okay. Excellent. Excellent advice, all. And what type of medical possibilities could you think of that might be playing into this? One, she has no information that he has had prenatal exposure, but it, that would be certainly something. I, I I don't know if he's a biological child, then she would know. But if he was adopted, that may be something that she doesn't know. Anything else that you can think of that, uh, from a medical standpoint, that she should be uh, on the lookout for or concerned about? Well, um, one thing, there could be allergies, and it's uh, surprising how often um, some kinds of allergies can really impact uh, behavior in some of the ways that have been described. There can also be some sensory and neurological uh, issues that um, can be discovered through a more complete neurological assessment, uh, sometimes even correctable with uh, certain types of uh, glasses, uh, for example. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a vision problem per se, and it doesn't mean it's 100% correctable in the, the way that it's going to be like a magic formula, but that there can be things that assist um, in, in regulating uh, physiologically as well as uh, it can be a metabolic um, uh, situation. We had a child who had uh, some of the kinds of behaviors that this mom is describing, and uh, he had a metabolic disorder. So, um, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I do know that when there are um, extremes, we do want to at least be sure we're not uh, eliminating the possibility that there could be an underlying uh, medical either explanation or um, 
factor that is, um, you know, being part sure. of yeah, the overall that makes good picture. Sense. Kim, any thoughts that, uh, I mean, sorry, Allison, any thoughts that you could share uh, with this mom as well? Absolutely. Um, I have a child who is really emotional, and um, I found that I tended to try to correct this um, because when he was unhappy, he would scream at me. He would be so um, intense that um, I was really working on correcting that behavior. But what I found was that what he was looking for in that intensity was my understanding. And so using the some of the ideas um, in Dan Siegel's book, The Whole Brain Child, thinking about just being really empathetic. So when he would be super frustrated that his coloring didn't look the way he wanted to, um, I would just listen um, and not react in a way like, it looks great, what are you so worried about, which is what I had previously been doing. Um, it's just giving him a lot of empathy, um, asking a lot of questions about um, what was going on, and just spending a lot of time really um, co-regulating with him. And so I would just sit with him even when he was so angry and frustrated and just maintain my own calm um, and talk to him about, it seems like you're feeling so frustrated. Um, and we were able to see a lot of improvement um, in those things. And he is just an intense kid. That's just mm -hmm. how he was created. But we could help him to, to move that intensity into some more positive directions. Great suggestions. Yeah, this and let is, me this is, go ahead, Sue. This is Sue. I would just really like to add to that, that word that was just used, co-regulating. I think it's a really important word for parents to pick up on. Um, and a lot of what I teach about has to do with that. Sometimes you can't in the moment uh, do anything that's going to um, sort of reach your child in the cognitive brain way because of where their brain is at right now. And, and we sort of need to help them reset their own brain. And the way we do that is sort of by being contagious, is how I refer to it, is do our own um, calming, do our own breathing uh, that's slow and controlled next to them, close to them. Um, just really be in a, that mode ourselves, that calm, regulated uh, breathing mode uh, in close proximity to the child. And, and it really, that, that, that regulation, that co-regulating, I love that word, becomes contagious. And it helps the child regulate their own brain because they can't even hear um, or comprehend the suggestions we might make to them um, about, you know, their their challenge or their behavior or their frustration when their brain is really just off um, the tracks at that moment. So the more we can help them regulate, and sometimes not by telling them what to do, but just by doing it and just by letting it be contagious. And And that has the extra advantage of calming you at a time when you are beginning to feel uncalm because this child is screaming and yelling, and that tends to set us off, and it could be a spiraling. So that's brilliant. So just start calming yourself. And it, not only will you hope that it might calm your child, but it calms you. If nothing, for no other Absolutely. reason, it's calming you. <laughs> um, one quick uh, mention that we also have courses or a course by Dan Siegel, which uh, Allison just mentioned. It's excellent. And we have a course uh, on uh, your, by, with uh, Dr. Russell Barkley on Your Defiant Child. Uh, 
well, the the title is uh, Your Defiant Child, but the uh, he's written two books, Your Defiant Child, Eight Steps to Better Behavior. He's also written Your Defiant Team, Ten Steps to Resolving Conflict and Rebuilding Your Relationship. Um, and his advice, his advice is, tends to be very practical and um, um, applicable uh, as well. We have a question from Paula that comes to, it directly ties into something that you both have just said, uh, and that is about getting in-home help. Paula says, my question is how to get respite or in-home therapy. My son was adopted internationally. The autism clinic in another state recommended in-home services to help out with my son. The in-home services are because of his need for constant supervision. The doctor thought in-home services would offer me some respite without disrupting his routine, just another set of eyes on him so I can make dinner or pee in peace. The doctor has tried for a month to find services for me in my county but has been unsuccessful. We need help and don't even know where to start, and our adoption agency is unhelpful. So, all right, so this is a practical question. Yes, I need, um, I know I need people, I know I need help. How do we find it? We've somewhat already answered the question by uh, the suggestion was, I think, Allison, you made it to search for a college student, and in your case, you actually chose somebody who had some training in that this might be, you know, she was a, a speech uh, pathologist or in training for one, and so that was helpful for her as well as uh, helpful for you. Um, Sue, anything you can add to that in addition to um, a college-type student uh, that, uh, and I think you yeah. mentioned seeking out help from your church if you're uh, if you're a member. Absolutely. So those are two great uh, ways to look. I also, um, it sounds great that this mom is working with her doctor, I assume it means pediatrician or, or, you know, medical doctor, be sure you're also engaging um, people within your behavioral health um, leadership and community uh, because they may know of services that your um, medical doctor perhaps might not be as familiar with. Uh, In our community, that's where it would come from. Uh, And then um, be a little outside the box. Some of the other types of organizations besides, I, you know, quickly just mentioned churches, but groups like Kiwanis, uh, Lions Clubs, Rotary Groups, uh, sometimes they, ha- or, or even the sororities, um, adult sorority uh, or fraternities, um, often have service arms and they sometimes have volunteer projects where they do something like this. My grandson, who is on the autism spectrum in another state, um, his mom, my daughter, was able to get support through one of those auxiliary organizations in her community. And then I do have to uh, give a shout out to. Um, my friend Lori Ross, who is in Missouri and who has developed a program through her Medicaid, with um, Medicaid in her state, where they're able to get what they call behavior interventionists, uh, paid for through Medicaid, uh, to do exactly what this mom is asking. So, but it took her advocating with the Medicaid office uh, to get that to happen. And so, um, you know, it's something that. Uh, Perhaps uh, I could put, you know, if, if you send some emails or something, I could uh, put her in touch with that and she could learn more about how to do that advocacy with the Medicaid office directly. I suspect that she does not, her child was adopted internationally, that she probably does not have access to Medicaid would be my guess, but I don't know. And she can Google that um, uh, from the information you gave. Great suggestions all. All right, we have a question from – I'm actually going to combine two questions. We have a question from Jill and Allison. First from Jill, how do you handle when harder-to-parent kids withdraw after being affectionate? And Allison asks, 
any idea how to manage kids who run away or keep trying to push you away? And those feel like similar questions, uh, withdrawing, pushing you away, or, or physically leaving. Um, so let's, uh, Allison, can you talk to us some about um, suggestions for Jill and this other Allison? I think one of the first things that we need to do as adoptive parents or foster parents um, who are dealing with kids who withdraw is really to remember that it's not personal, um, to know that it's not about us. It's really typically about what our kids have been through um, and their past. And so to, to kind of remove that guilt that we as parents may feel um, when our children are, are not responding in ways that feel really uh, normal to us and, and affectionate. Um, and I think being playful can be really helpful in these situations. Um, when, when my children um, withdraw, one of my, uh, my youngest child would really not, um, did not enjoy any kind of physical affection for a long, long time. Um, after she was placed in our home, and I would just be really playful with her and say, if you can't give me a hug or a kiss, let's touch elbows. And so we would just touch elbows, and, and that was a first step. Um, we spent a lot of very short one-on-one -on -one time. Um, we used a lot of things like games from TheraPlay. Um, we would just do silly little games together, like have a staring contest, um, and that helped us to build that rapport and to do something like having eye contact, even if it was just for a second, because she knew she would get a sucker afterwards if she won the staring contest. And so starting really small can assist and it can break down that, that wall that the child has built to protect themselves, and we can just get in there little by little as, uh, as the parent. Great suggestions. Um, Sue? Thoughts on this, uh, yeah. this withdrawing? Absolutely. So, yes, really understanding that it's not about you, which is why anytime you can connect to the supports, um, again, the online as well as in person, um, really is important because you have to depersonalize these situations. Uh, and playfulness, uh, play and laughter are so important, and there's a lot of research about the benefits of play and laughter, so I would underscore that. And what I would add is... Um, you know, there, there's this concept of people having different love languages. You may have seen some of those uh, books or heard speakers on that. And so I don't want to go all down that path, but what I would say is that there are different ways that different individuals uh, show affection and receive affection. And so I was just talking to a mom on a, the other day whose child could not be affectionate or didn't seem to want to be affectionate in the ways that meant something to her. But it turned out that this child um, really liked uh, writing and writing poetry and, and things like that. And so finding um, that example and sharing things that they wrote uh, back and forth, it might be more physical. It might be throwing a, a football or, or something like that. It might be um, going for a walk. It might be uh, other ways that uh, relate to uh, music or other sensory uh, ways that, that correlate with other things we've said before. So sort of finding uh, what is your child's uh, way of receiving and giving affection may not be physical, may not be what we would describe as affection at all, but if you can tune in, really be attuned to what uh, works for that child and then try to use that. And then the other um, thing I would also note is that um, sometimes children just do relate to 
one, if, you, if you're a two-parent family or if you have one parent and other adults like grandparents involved in the child's life, um, sometimes a child is going to respond better to one adult than another in those ways. And, again, not to take it personal, but to um, provide those opportunities and to support uh, that opportunity for that child to have that one-on-one time or connectedness time with an adult that they do feel comfortable with, again, that, that just increases their capacity for relationship and for connection, and it will then spill over into their relationship with you as well. And as far as the physical runaway, um, that's harder. You know, I have had, um, luckily, not too many of our kids that that ever did that, but I have experienced it with both one of our uh, children that we adopted as well as with um, some of the children we fostered over the years. It's hard because you're so concerned about their safety when they're not physically with you. so, you know, providing ways that they can have a safe place they can go if they need to sort of um, decompress from the family dynamic, if they need to decompress from the expectation of relationship. Is there a neighbor? Is there an extended family member? Is there a friend, um, a place that they can safely go and that has your sort of blessing and that you won't sort of bug them while they're there, that they'll have their, their space and their time, but at the same time you'll know they're safe. Um, that's one way to begin to address that issue while you're working on these other pieces. You know, that's a, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the issue of physically running away because that is, that's terrifying from a parent's standpoint uh, because you, you don't know that they're safe. Uh, so I was going to you. It was a great segue because I was going to make certain we talked about that. Having a safe place that the child can get to, neighbor, uh, relative, uh, some place that uh, that an approved place where you know they would be safe is a great suggestion. Um, Allison, any thoughts on on what to do if a child is physically running away from you? That's so challenging because we do worry a lot about our kids. I think maybe having a plan in place, um, as Sue said, having a way that you can get a hold of the child. I have walked with a kid um, who was fairly young but still um, able to get out of the house. I just walked behind them until they got tired and said, you ready to go home, dude? Um, And I didn't bug him. I didn't talk to him. I just stayed a few steps behind um, and quietly walked there. But it's very challenging. Um, I think having a great therapist who you can contact and who can be on call, knowing um, what you and uh, your family should do if this happens again, having the local crisis line in your phone, just having a plan can help so much um, when your kid is in crisis. Yeah, that's actually a good idea, having a plan so that you have something that you can concretely do. And when you have a therapist on call, is that for you or for the child to talk to the therapist? Of course, the child is running, so it's going to be hard to get the, you know, make the, have the child um, have access uh, to the phone to talk to the therapist. So is it for the parent or for the child? I think it could be for both. Um, if your child is old enough to have their own cell phone, you could alert your um, therapist or the on-call caseworker to maybe give them a call and um, work with them to, 
to come up with a plan if they're unwilling to um, work that out with you as their mom or dad. Um, But also having a therapist for yourself. We've mentioned so many times having that support. Um, Having another parent who is dealing or has dealt in the past with similar issues um, and just talking to them about what they have done um, and just having that emotional support can be incredibly helpful. You know, and I we have seen this on our support group, not infrequently, where somebody will be reach will reach out in the moment of of a crisis such as this. My child has just run away. I am so scared. I'm angry. I'm frightened. Blah blah blah. And having others who can come in and say, you know, been there, done that, understand. You know, this is what I did. Uh, have you tried calling? You know, uh, teachers and things like that. You know, giving specific suggestions. And it just it it makes you feel that you are not alone in the middle of what is you know really is a very frightening time as a parent. Um, I wanted to raise. I'm so glad we got we got two questions. And I if I uh, if we had not received the questions, I was going to raise it raise this issue. And it's when you are it, it's it's sibling relationships and the idea of fairness when you are raising a a, a harder to parent child or a child with behavioral challenges. Uh, I'm going to read both of them. Um, one is from Natalie. She said, in transracial adoption, sibling, complex, sibling conflicts can be hard and frequent, with the natural-born siblings being perceived as better treated, simply due to the fact that the child, that, that child has less behavioral and defiance issues. Any suggestions would be appreciated. And another uh, question from Laura, who says, how can you help siblings deal with a child who has extreme behaviors? For example, our new 13-year-old son has violent temper tantrums. Our strategy is to remain calm and ignore the behaviors until he is calm. Our older kids think we are letting him get away with murder because we've never tolerated similar behavior from them. I overheard one of my older girls referring to our adopted son as the little prince. Uh yeah, this one this one is a tough one, uh, and and I'm so glad that that uh, Natalie and Laura raised it because we hear it a lot. Um, I know you both <laughs> have a lot to say about this, so Allison, I'm going to start with you, and then uh, Sue, uh, be thinking because I know you've had this experience as well. All right, Allison, let's start with you. Sure. We have a sign in our home that says, "Fair means everyone gets what they need, not that everyone gets the same thing." And that is a huge paradigm shift for most of us as parents. Um, It's certainly a real shift in thinking um, between the siblings. But just allowing um, our kids to know, hey, everyone doesn't get the same thing. We all get what we need up front can really put some of that resentment to rest. Um, Making sure that you are spending enough one-on-one time with each sibling so they all feel full Um, that they are not losing you to this child who has such high needs can be quite helpful. And I think being honest with with our kids is is so important. Um, Just talking about why children may have this high level of need can help other kids in the family to be more understanding. And so I think it's so important that our kids realize that Um, Children who are expressing their needs in these really inappropriate ways are typically not just the little prince. They're not bad kids. They're kids who don't have better ways 
to get their needs met yet, and that it may take a while. So being really open and honest with the kids about what it's going to take to parent this um, new sibling can be really important. Sue, thoughts? Yes, um, those are uh, those are great points that were made, Allison. And I loved when you said uh, every child gets what they need, uh, not the same thing. We actually did a real um, sort of object lesson about this once when a, a bunch of our kids were in that age range of oh, 07 to 10 and the kind of cry of it's not fair was a sort of constant refrain around the house. And we had a child who had uh, had an accident on the playground at school and broken her arm, and her arm was now in a cast. And then uh, while her arm was still in the cast, we had another child who was um, not feeling well and was actually had thrown up that day. And so we announced to the family that we were going to bring this other child to the doctor to get a cast on his arm uh, because he wasn't, was sick. And everyone said, well, that's crazy. He's throwing up. It's nothing to do with his arm. And we said, yes, we know, but we want to be fair. And since the last person who had to go to the doctor uh, got a cast, we want to make sure this person can get a cast too. And that was a, just a really great object lesson of a way, in a very concrete way, to make that point that Allison just made. Uh, and it really did change the dynamic after that. So that was one thing. Another thing is we scheduled um, we scheduled special quality one-on-one time with each child by having uh, what we call a special day for each child when they could uh, have time alone with me, time alone with my husband, and we rotated through everyone in the family so they all knew that that was coming and they could select how they wanted to spend it. We also took turns taking kids with us when we had to do errands or groceries. Um, so we really scheduled that kind of stuff in. Another point is creating... Um, private space for each child, even if it's just a locking footlocker, where they could have uh, some space where they could keep things that were important to them that they didn't want to have to share. Um, Another example is creating opportunities to sort of mix up the the sibling connections. So two of our sons that often um, fought with each other, uh, and they were the same exact age. They were just a month apart by their birth dates, not biologically related, and very different in their um, cognitive capacity. And one had very difficult uh, behaviors, the other not so much, and so on. Um, but we sent, we gave them a week at the same uh, summer camp and without any of their other siblings going to that same camp. And that um, opportunity just really changed it. It didn't mean they never fought again or anything, but it gave them a new opportunity to experience themselves as brothers in a different environment without the rest of the family around. So just sometimes kind of creating something where you, you shift the dynamic in the sibling relationship. Teaching the kids, I think Allison said this, about you know, the needs and how to respond to the needs and, and why, you're, why you're making the decision you're making. And then um, two last things I would add. One um, is that uh, oftentimes when you have kids that are much older than the, the newer child or the younger child in the family, um, even when the whole family is biological or, or whatever, uh, it often is the perception of the older oldest kids, oh, we never got away with that. So, again, normalizing some of these comments that are made and not pathologizing it. You know, it's not uh, unusual for for the 20-somethings to look at the current teenager and say, oh, mom and dad never let us get away with that. That's, you know, that one's the princess or the prince. I think that's really normal. The other thing is um, I noticed in one of the questions it was about the transracial aspect of the uh, adoption. I'm and glad so you picked that I up. Was, yes, I was coming back to it. Yeah. yeah. 
So I would say a couple of things there, but one is that we always, all of us, in life, in, in, in our living in our society now, whether we have a transracial family or not, but particularly when we do, we have to really check um, biases and perceptions. So one part of that is to really be careful that there's not some uh, something to that perception that is the child of color, um, you know, getting any kind of different treatment than a child, another child, uh, in a way that contributes to a perception around bias related to race. So we always have to be alert and really checking our bias and having adult, um, close adults in our life, friends, um, neighbors, people that attend the same uh, church or synagogue or, or other kind of, you know, tennis club or book club or whatever we might be involved in, uh, adults of the same uh, race and heritage of our children that we can really check that with and ask them to sort of give us feedback. I think it's really important. And then also being willing to really openly have conversations about how it feels, how it feels to be a, a person of color today in this context, in this society that we're in, uh, watching films together and discussing them and what is that like and what does that mean, um, and really being able to digest that and understand that and process that. Um, but I, I, particularly important to have those other adults and other people that um, can both help us as the parents, but also can be someone that our children can look to and see um, and, and connect with that are adults that, um, you know, look like them, that sound like them, et cetera, uh, I think is a really important piece of this as well. And both of these questions, it sounds like, deal with, uh, although perhaps not Natalie's, I, uh, I'm not sure, but deal with the existing children in the family, resenting the treatment um, of the children, of the new children coming into the family, or resent that that child is getting away with things that they would not be allowed to. But we also see it the reverse, uh, and that was children coming into the family, um, newer children, seeing that uh, and uh, a child that's existing already in the family may have privileges that they don't have, and. Oftentimes, sometimes it's obvious because the child, the existing child, is older or, or you know, has earned those privileges because of age, and we often divvy up privileges in families based on age. But sometimes the children coming into the family may be of similar age, and yet developmentally, behaviorally, or whatever, the existing child is given more responsibility or freedom or or whatever, and the new child coming in is resentful. So thoughts on on how to ha- uh, on handle the reverse when it's the new child coming in that says, "Hey, why can't I do that? I'm the same age. Why am I, you know, why am I being singled out?" Allison, thoughts on that? Giving that child who feels singled out um, their own special privileges that may be a bit different than uh, the other sibling could be really helpful. And I think assigning. Um, a sibling of a similar age or, or maybe a bit older that has different privileges to be a mentor to the newer child could also help um, to navigate some of that resentment. All right. This next one yes, I'm not going to mention. Oh, go ahead, Sue. Oh, I, I would just add to that um, that also looking for ways that you can do things that don't have to relate to something that's earned. Uh, so, for example, bedtime, um, we have, and we had this exact situation that you described multiple times. We have two sets of uh, twins, if you will, in our family that are two children within less than a month of age. 
who came to us from very different backgrounds, and one of the two being much more uh, capable, both um, in terms of their behavior and in terms of their cognition, uh, than the other. So we had exactly what you're talking about multiple times. But bedtime is one example where we would then um, – each child could have a turn when it was their night to have a, a extra half hour uh, staying up, and it didn't have to be earned. It was just you got it. That if it was your turn, you got it. And so finding those kinds of things that you can build into family life that aren't earned and don't have to be based on behavior or don't have to be based on capacity or capability uh, can also help even that out to go along with the suggestions that Allison already made. All right. This next one, I'm not going to use her name, and this is a hard one. She said, my child's behavior makes it really, really hard for me to like her or even love her. She was adopted at age three, almost four, and has been with us for seven years. She is aggressive more verbally than physically. She is completely disorganized. She is never affectionate. She has seen a... she has seen a therapist when she was eight, but it didn't improve her behavior. She behaves pretty well at school, but doesn't have many friends. I fear for the future. I'm not even sure what my question is, but I guess it is how to connect with a child that is not very easy to parent or even like. Um, Sue, thoughts on this one? Well, first I can say um, to this parent, mom or dad, that I can relate and you're not alone. And I think that's really um, the most important thing you can do for yourself is to find people that can help you understand that you are not alone in that experience. And then the second is to really find um, ways that you can then empathize what it may be like for this child. Um, You know, does fairly well in school but doesn't have a lot of friends. You know, really try to empathize with what that probably feels like. And so... Um, to have a little more of that sense of this child is really hard, this situation is really hard, but I also can tap into some empathy for this child. Um, And then um, try, uh, you know, both giving each of you uh, opportunities to have uh, breaks from one another and then also finding ways that you can find at least one activity that you both enjoy, even if you... um, even if it's a stretch, but, uh, you know, it could be something as simple as a walk. Uh, it could be uh, this one of my children who was the most difficult to like, the most uh, difficult in just so many other ways, uh, really did like helping um, cook. And she wasn't good at it, and it, and it was, um, you know, it was more work than it was worth almost. When she was supposedly helping, I had to do twice as much work as when she <laughs> wasn't helping. But... Um, but it was the one time when we could actually sort of physically be in the same place and she was doing something that she really wanted to do and we were doing it together. And that began to build the foundation of um, sort of a sense of connection and, and again, that, that empathy that then could carry over. And then lots of the things that Allison in particular has talked about on earlier parts of this call and that I've often just said yes, ditto, underscore, um, because they're so valuable. But a a lot of the um, things around self-regulation, it sounds like this child just really, um, you know, therapists, I I think of this that when we have a child with a medical condition, we we look for the specific specialist. If your child has a cardiac condition or a skin condition or vision problem, you go to a specialist for that. But then when it comes to, um, you know, emotional regulation, we sort of get the idea that a therapist is a therapist is a therapist, and whoever is close or recommended by someone else or in our health insurance network, that's who we go to. And and that just couldn't be more um, untrue. We have to be as careful finding the right person 
uh, in that category as we would for, for vision or heart condition. Um, and so uh, because this child has had a therapist in the past, it may not have been the right one, but really finding someone that can help build on uh, opportunities for emotional regulation and uh, again, it sounds like uh, this child could benefit from using um, other forms of expression, perhaps through art, coloring, um, music, dance, finding one of my uh, children that's most in this category, uh, dance, proved to be the thing that was the most helpful uh, way to help her get more regulated and able to communicate better uh, and just in some ways to be more likable. Um, and, and so those are, those are the things that I would put out there. And the one thing I want to underscore is something you said, and that the finding an activity that you can do together that you both enjoy. And, and, and when we say that, as a parent, we do have to be a little more flexible than the child because we really can't expect the child, your child that wanted to cook with you, that probably wasn't something, truthfully, that you enjoyed, but you were willing to do it because it was something that you could do together. And uh, so as a parent... Um, yeah, it may not be exactly. I mean, you may love to play tennis, and this child may have really poor eye-hand coordination. So you need to find something that this kid likes to do that you can tolerate and do. In this case, Allison, I also had a question. And would what about? She's talked about sending the child to therapy, but it sounds like this is a situation where both the mom and the child, or the the parent and the child. Uh, could benefit from from family therapy or the whole family, not just both parents and the child, if there are both parents. Thoughts on that, Allison? Sure. I think the best thing that I ever did for my child was getting therapy for myself. Um, I would find myself in similar situations, feeling just disconnected from my kid because of the behaviors that um, I was dealing with, and I realized that if I was not okay, my kid was never going to be okay either. So while I think family therapy could be really important in this situation, just having mom have someone to talk to about this disconnection that she's feeling and working through some of the issues that she may be um, working on, sometimes our kids trigger our old stuff. And so it may be less that she doesn't like this child, but more that she doesn't like how she feels when she's with this child because it triggers some of her own issues. I think that could be really helpful. I know that um, it was huge for me and my family. And then maybe looking for something less traditional with the family therapy, looking at something like TheraPlay that I mentioned before, um, filial play therapy where the child and parent are both involved in the play. All of those can build some of that attachment. And I think finding some time when uh, the child is behaving to really look at that kiddo in my family, that was when he was asleep. I would go into his room and just sit beside him, no matter how bad that day had been, and just look at that face when he was asleep and think about um, who this child was and what he had been through and what he could become. And it really softened me. Um, it was much more working on my stuff than his. <laughs> great, great advice. We have a couple of questions, uh, one from uh, Allison that, meant, that asked a question before and the one from Laura. Um, 
Uh, one is asking, Allison is asking how to deal with aggressive behavior, and Laura is asking how to deal with a child who is raging. So thoughts on what to do in the moment when you've got a child who's Behavior is is either aggressive or, or, or raging or tantruming or something along those lines. Um, Sue, let's start with you on that one. So um, we have to be concerned in those situations with uh, both safety of everyone, physical and psychological, and with not escalating anything further while we're uh, working towards bringing things down and calming. So um, one thing is that, I talked about before, and Allison did too, that idea of co-regulating. But before we can even do that, um, clearing the room, you know, making sure that if you've got one child that's out of uh, control in that way, um, getting other kiddos out of the room, anyone else. So, A, there's not risk of um, harm to anyone else, but also that there's not the opposite effect of the co-regulating can be the escalating, and the other children can contribute to the the escalating. The, The child is having the problem right at the moment needs to feel they have to save face. So the more you get everyone else out of the room and just create a sort of environment of safety, and then you start to do the things that can be contagious. As I said, you start to do some calming breathing uh, in particular because often when a child is raging, um, their their breathing is uh, slow, I mean, it's fast and shallow, and you need to slow it down so that they can then uh, calm down. And then the more you can sort of morph it into something perhaps that it could be uh, safe. So if you can have, um, Allison talked about this in her sensory room, but if you can have a pillow available, that uh, let's punch on this pillow or a punching bag, if you can have something where you can direct the rage and the aggressiveness into something that is, is safe, while at the same time you model and mirror um, the, the regulated, you know, the breathing and the calm, calming uh, sounds, make sure you have other things in the environment, whether it's music or other sounds, whether it's the, again, a scent that might be in the air that are likely to help bring the, um, bring the child back into a regulated state. But first, get others out of the area so that you don't uh, have the risk of escalating or harm and then work on these other pieces. Allison, anything additional to that? No, that's great advice. I do think having that plan, knowing what you're going to do if you have a child who um, gets in these situations pretty often, just having a plan. So I know when this happens in our home, my husband does one thing, which is take the children somewhere else, and then I may be the one that sits with him, and we've worked out. This is what we're going to do. Um, up to the point of what do we do if we need to get this child to a hospital or to somewhere that's um, even more safe outside of our home. So having a plan in place so that you aren't escalating as the parent and you have that ability to help your child co-regulate is paramount. And we got a question from Bobby um, talking about residential placements. She's asking for do's and don'ts. And, and what should a parent, when should a parent consider this and, and, and how to go about it in a way that is, is best for the child, the family, the parent, everyone. We had um, uh, a course, we have a course with Dr. Richard Barth on um, parenting techniques to prevent dissolution, adoption dissolution. And in that course, he talked about residential treatment and was saying, that that there isn't a lot of research that shows that it's particularly effective. However, he said, I as a parent have utilized it. 
and uh, quite frankly, I did because we needed a break. So it was a really interesting. Um, it was an interesting perspective, and I'm, I'm grossly paraphrasing. I should add as well. But um, so let's talk some. Let's start with you, Allison, uh, about some of the, as Bobby asked, do's and don'ts of residential placement. When you are looking for an appropriate placement for your child, you really have to take that child's background into consideration. So if this is a child who's been through uh, trauma or if this is a child who's been substance exposed, finding a location that knows and understands those specific issues um, is something that you really need to spend some time looking at. Not all residential treatment facilities are trauma-informed or trauma-competent. They don't all um, look at things through that neurobiological um, way of saying, you know, this kid is drug-exposed or alcohol-exposed and therefore may have um, behaviors that just look a little different than a neurotypical kid. So I think getting really familiar with what's out there. um, In my role as the parent advocate at Harmony, I just collect Um, flyers, information from all the residential treatment centers um, in the local area so that families can look through those before they are ready to say, let's do it tomorrow. Um, That way they kind of know these are the ones that are more trauma-focused, these are the ones that have good programs for children who are acting out sexually, these are ones that work with kids who are substance-exposed. So looking into those facilities and finding one that really will meet your child's needs so that when they do come back into the home, you know that they were getting appropriate care while they were away from you. Sue, what can you add to that on the um, tips and tricks or whatever if you're uh, having to consider residential placement for your child? Yeah, finding the appropriate place is so important, so I would totally underscore that. But the other is that we really need to think of it more as we would if a child had to have surgery or in some other way receive medical care in a facility outside of our home. How would you engage? How would you interact? What would you expect? Uh, And what would be your role as the parent? You would visit. You would participate in meetings. You would advocate for your child's care. You would make sure you had a good discharge plan so that you could do the right transition things when your child comes home. And I think it's really uh, very much the same, that we don't need to overly um, look at residential care as a sign of a failure or stigma um, for the parent, but rather as, you know, this is what was needed for this period of time, but I'm still the parent and I'm still thoroughly involved in the same way I would be if my child was having something as simple as their tonsils out or something as major as extended chemotherapy, um, whatever it might be. Um, you know, when our child has a medical condition, we don't take it as a sign that we've failed and we need to have the same uh, approach to these other kinds of treatments and still be the parent that's fully engaged and fully um, abreast of and advocating for and participating in um, the, the life of the child even when they're not at home. I love that analogy. Yes, this is a form of of medical care that we're providing for our child, and we should treat it the same way and uh, so that we take the stigma off of it for us. Um, so does that, uh, would that uh, dictate that local, preferable to uh, a, a treatment center that is further away so that the parent can stay more involved, Sue? 
Oh, I would absolutely say that. It's almost always uh, preferable. But having lived a lot of my years in Vermont, I know, again, with the medical analogy, if you needed certain kinds of care uh, for your child, you had to send them to Boston, um, uh, you know, to to get the right uh, hospital. And you had to figure out how you could be there as much as you could, even if it was a three- or four-hour drive. So sometimes in our rural communities, we don't have as many options, but we still uh, should be looking for local as much as we can. Right. What I'd like to do is kind of um, sum things up a bit, which is impossible with anything this this complex, because we're talking about harder to parent children, and and there could be literally a million reasons more why a child might be harder to parent. And one of the things that that I've heard loud and clear here is that some of the reasons our children are harder to parent is because of the way we are fitting with our kids. That some of the, that they that some of our needs are not being met by our kids and vice versa. So it's so we've really got two people, or if we have a two-parent family, then we've got, you know, three people whose needs are all intermeshing. So uh, to put it mildly, it would be highly, highly complex. But if you could sum it up with just a few pieces of advice for people who are uh, parents who are in the, in the ditches, parenting kids who are harder to parent, uh, things that you would want them to know and I'll start us off because you've both mentioned it so many times and that is self-care taking care of ourselves so uh, and that's a recurring theme here (laughs) at uh, creating a family so I'll start it off that way Uh, and and Sue let's go ahead and begin with you Uh, what are some things that you want people to know who are uh, just general things that that would apply to many different situations Sure. Well, self-care, absolutely. Secondly, who do you connect with? I often use this analogy when I uh, speak, when I talk about uh, going on a road trip and we bring a toolkit and we bring a spare tire and all these other things. And one of the things we bring are jumper cables uh, in case your battery goes dead. But um, all the tools that you have are worthless when your battery is dead unless you have someone with a live battery that you can connect to. So who are your live batteries and where are they located and can you connect to them in a, a moment's notice? So, and not to just have one. So it is that online support. It is that in-person support. It is that one friend that you can call even in the middle of the night. It's who, are, who and where are your live batteries that you can connect to because all the other tools will be useless, really, in that moment when your, uh, your own battery is dead unless you, can, unless you have access to that. And and then the wait, third. Sue, um, wait, wait, Sue. Let me stop you. I think yes. we'll do this. I I want to do it uh, every other one. That allows. Uh, uh, let me get, let get Allison in here. You say one, sure, then Sue. Sure. I'm going to come back to you. So Allison. And by the way, I absolutely love that. Um, who who can you who can you use to recharge you, uh, to give you support? Phenomenal. Thank you for that, uh, Sue. All right, Allison. What would be a tip you would give that has some universal application? I think learning as much as you can about trauma, uh, about what your child has been through, how it affects them is so um, rewarding. It helps me to understand my child in the moment. The more that I read about how the brain um, develops and how my child's brain didn't develop in appropriate ways, I'm so much more compassionate with him and all of my children. Um, It just helps me so much to know exactly what was going on with them and learning about therapeutic parenting. The more that I'm engaged in 
learning about my child and how I can best work with them, the better parent that I am and the easier that it becomes. Excellent. Sue, for your next one. Oh, that's funny because I was going to say knowledge, and so knowledge about trauma is really important, but I would add knowledge about a few other issues. Um, so knowledge just in general about development, developmentally, where is my child and what is reasonable to expect, uh, and brain development and some, some, some of the brain uh, knowledge that we now have that we didn't always have before, and also knowledge about the impact of things like race. Uh, culture, uh, religious heritage, uh, gender expression, gender identity, sexuality, all of these areas where we can really increase our knowledge um, along with then having the tools, uh, the practical tools and the supports is really important. Excellent. Okay. Allison, your turn. Cultivating empathy um, for yourself as a parent and for your child, um, spending that, it's, it goes along with self-care, but really focusing on empathy and thinking about that kid's experience and thinking about how your experience as um, a human being affects you as a parent and forgiving those perceived mess-ups. I feel like I have so many more mess-ups than successes, but I've learned from those. And so finding ways to just cultivate empathy in your life will make you a better human and a better parent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Sue. I like to talk about having tools that are cheap and accessible. Um, so not always relying on the big things, the therapy, the, you know, the big things that are expensive or time-consuming. Uh, so that's a lot of um, what I talk about in the in the coloring workbook. Actually, is blowing bubbles, coloring, uh, finding things that work for you and your child uh, to to regulate, to build connection, to uh, increase capacity for understanding, to help change behavior. All those things. Finding ways that you can do that that are small and cheap and accessible. Even in the self care thread that was on. Um, on the uh, Facebook page, I saw people saying they didn't have time for self-care, and I get that, but yet find that small something you can do in five seconds that at least gives you a little nugget, uh, and as well as for your self-care, as well as for your child. Excellent. And we have time for each of you to give one more. So, Allison. The more difficult your child is, the more fun you should be having with them. Um, the more challenging the behaviors of my kids the more I attempt to make them laugh and what I find is that we can sometimes get that behavior back on track but even if it's not possible I still had fun even if they chose not to so trying to be um, happy even in the face of not so great days and not so great behaviors really changes how you feel and if I can change how I feel um that's well that's really all I can do it's change my own behavior and how I feel so having fun with your kiddos even when they are challenging even after the fifth therapy appointment try to have some fun and Sue last word here that's a great uh, that's great advice and the other is to really remember it is mind emotion spirit and body Use bodies. Do physical things. Don't always think everything has to be in your brain and in your feelings. Um, so the more you can do physical things uh, together or separately, uh, I think that really helps a lot as well. 
and if nothing else, it tires them out. So at the end of the day, they'll sleep. <laughs> so if, <laughs> if all else fails, we'll be thankful for that. Thank you both so much for being uh, on this course this today to help us learn more about the whole concept of of parenting harder to parent kids. I truly appreciate your presence. I want to take this moment to uh, thank a few more of our gold sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We have Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families through adoption, private infant, international, as well as adoption through foster care. We have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency, placing waiting kids from around the world and offering home study and post-adoption support services to residents of North Carolina and New York. And we have Nightlight Christian Adoption, and they have been helping children connect with loving families for more than 50 years, and they now offer have offices from coast to coast to help families. I know that you guys uh, will be interested in reaching out to get more information about our guest today, uh, Allison Douglas. You can find more information about her. She is the family advocate at Harmony Family Center, and their website is harmonyfamilycenter.org. And more information about Sue Beddo, as well as about her book, Building Bridges of Hope, a coloring book for adults caring for children who have experienced trauma. You can get information about her and the book at her website, which is suebeddo.com. And let me spell that for you, S-U-E, obviously, Beddo, B-A-D-E-A-U.com. Thank you so much for being with us, and I will see you next week. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.